morning, folks. <clears throat> Wonderful to be with all of you and see the heart for God and spirit uh, in your midst. I, I've been going through a, a bit of a crisis recently with um, doing talk radio every day because there's really nothing to talk about. Uh, that was a joke, actually, just in case they... I know we're about to get serious, but that was a joke. What, what crazy times, but what great times for the gospel. And sometimes the worst things that happen to us can be the best things. It all depends on how we respond in this moment. And we're at a time of real national shaking and change and things that we're all living through that we never lived through before, uh, individually or corporately. Uh, but these could be great times if we seize them in the gospel. And I'm so blessed to see the, uh, Pastor Chris and the leadership continuing to push for the things that matter most, which is getting hold of God. There is, there is no earthly answer to the problems we're facing. But this is a great moment for the gospel if we'll take hold of it. Amen? Amen. So uh, I, I want to be scriptural and practical this morning. And I may perhaps, while being scriptural and practical, talk about something political. <laughs> but it will only be in the goal of being scriptural and practical. Amen? Amen? Amen. Quick story. Uh, immediately after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, I was speaking in California, and two congregations shared a building. One of the congregations was basically all white assembly of God. Older Christians, basically all white. In a setting like that, you could imagine that the great majority would have been conservative Republicans and therefore voted for Donald Trump. The other congregation was somewhat younger and basically all Hispanic. And that demographic, you might have had some Trump voters, but much less percentage. And the pastors asked if I could, in the midst of my message, also talk about the elections. <laughs> so it's very easy to think in partisan terms, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, but then there's God's perspective. And I, I want to remind you that we are kingdom of God people above all. Amen? Kingdom of God people more than we are Americans. So we are, we are good, loyal citizens because we are kingdom of God people. But we understand that there's a difference between the cross and the flag. And, and whatever positions we hold to as followers of Jesus should be things that we can universally rally around together. The fundamentals unite us rather than divide us. Amen? All right, so with that friendly introduction, let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've been doing here at Fire Church. I thank you for the ongoing cry to you, which has continued for many years. I thank you, Father, for the seeking of your face and your wisdom. And I ask you for insight from above. And Father, those that are physically here and those that are watching online, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We ask it in Jesus' name. So as you have been in 1 Corinthians, there are themes that occur over and over in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And I want to speak to you today about finding strength in weakness. Finding strength in weakness. 
And we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of this will be familiar to you. We'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We'll read into the beginning of the second chapter, and then we'll go over to 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Picture that God sends you to do outreach meetings at Harvard University. I mean, you will want to come in intellectually sharp. You will want to come in knowing the Hebrew and Greek of the scriptures because you'll be challenged. You'll want to come in with all the great apologetic arguments and, 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 and use all the good words that, that the educated and the elite would use. And yet God might send you in to preach the most basic ABC gospel message imaginable. And, and it's through the foolishness of the cross that the wisdom of God is revealed. That our way of doing things to impress the world and to be smarter than the world or as smart as the world, to basically show the world we're just like you is not going to win people to Jesus. I read an interesting article about a, a pastor who had fallen, but prior to that he was very much in kind of a hip, slick environment. And the person writing the column said, you know, I am not a religious person or a believer, but the impression I got was that that person wanted what we had more than us wanting what he had. In other words, we want to impress the world. Well, to what purpose? Are we impressed by the world? Are we enamored by the world, the wisdom of the world, the, the wisdom of the age? When that is crucified in our sight, and we realize that God's wisdom is so massive. Think of this. It says in Colossians 2 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. So where does God hide the greatest wisdom that's ever been displayed to the universe? He, he hides it in a Jewish carpenter dying a criminal's death on the cross. In other words, you'll search everywhere and never think of searching there. God's wisdom is so far above ours that he hides things in plain sight and the wise of this world can't even see them. I once read the story of a famous Russian professor in America, atheist, very scornful of religion. And on a regular basis, he would get his shoes signed. And the, the guy shining his shoes was completely uneducated that's, in fact, why he shines shoes for a living. But he was a believer and full of joy. It sounds like one of these stereotypical stories, but it was true. And here, this brilliant Russian atheist professor who probably forgot in a day more than this other guy had learned in a lifetime in terms of academic knowledge, 
He was depressed and struggling and encountered the joy of the Lord in this simple man whenever his shoes would be shined and asked him, why do you have so much joy? And this man preached Jesus to him and the Russian professor got saved through the witness of the shoe shiner. Now, it doesn't mean that we are anti-intellectual. When you read Paul's writings, they're deep. And he does talk about in the second chapter, there is a wisdom that we get into among the mature. And in fact, to this day, commentators write massive books. I mean, there are thousands, countless thousands of books and articles on a regular basis being poured out, trying to understand what Paul wrote, debating the meaning of his words in Romans or a passage here and there. He was intellectual, he was brilliant, but he didn't rely on that. And when he went to Corinth, which was a great intellectual city, famous for its oratory, its great speeches and things like that, the temptation was, I'm going to show you how smart I am. Now, he went in the synagogues, he did, and he debated. And when he was challenged about his faith by other brilliant Jews, anointed by the Spirit and with brilliant insight, he opened the scriptures. But specifically, when he went into Corinth, he knew that's not the winning strategy. Corinth was a, a prosperous city, a city where there were regular Olympic-type games there. That's some of the imagery that you find in the book. It would be easy to go in armed in the natural, and instead he preaches this simple message. It, it reminds me, in a different way, of a story that evangelist missionary T.L. Osborne told, that he went to preach in a Buddhist country fairly early on in his evangelistic and missions ministry. And he wanted to explain to them the concept of atoning blood and sacrificial blood and why the blood. And he finished his message and the people there began to laugh at him and mock. And they said, you serve a bloody God. What kind of God is that? He went back to his room that night it was on his face crying, I didn't come halfway around the world, God, to have your name mocked. And God said to him, proclaim, don't explain. Proclaim, don't explain. The power of the gospel is in the proclamation. So the next night he got up and basically just quoted scripture. Just gave scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, laying out the gospel message. And next thing, God begins to move. People begin to come and get saved. He's looking for his translator. Where is the translator? He said, he's over there weeping. He said, get him up here. He said, it's not proper in our culture for a man to be weeping publicly. He said, well, get him up. It doesn't matter. We need him up here. Now, we always are explaining and we always are teaching. And, and apologetics is essential. In, in other words, your kids come home from school with questions. You don't just preach at them. That's why so many people drop out of church because they can't get their questions answered. They can't even ask their questions. I have a book scheduled to come out in May called Has God Failed You? The subtitle, subtitle Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real. One of the chapters is called Permission to Doubt. In, in Jude, there's actually a verse. I don't think I've ever heard a message preached on it until I preached on it a few months ago. Have mercy on those who doubt. There, there's a doubt that's sinning because it's double-minded and, and it's not walking in integrity and faith before God. But there's another doubt where God says, have mercy, have mercy on it because people are struggling and people are wondering and people have legitimate questions. 
And we need to have an environment where you're completely safe to ask, ask those questions. That's a great question. Dan Brown, the mega bestseller author of Da Vinci Code and other books like that, I don't know how many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of books he sold. I was part of a, a panel some years ago discussing Da Vinci Code in New York City. So I had to read the book and it was you know, compelling reading, it's page turner. And I kept going back to the front. We said, this is all based on factual data. I'm like, what is he talking about? Maybe the specific art descriptions and things like that, but everything else, what's he talking about? Factual data, it was the most bizarre stuff. And as I traveled for some time, every plane I got on, people are reading the book, it just took off. But there was so much of an anti-God, anti-religion, anti-Christian yeah. attitude through the book. And then I read a few of his other books after that, and I thought, same stream, same anti-God, anti-Christian, or anti-Catholic, where's it coming from? I thought something happened in his background. In fact, in one of the characters in his book, one of his books, he even talks about something happening in the person's background and how they turn against religion. I thought, something happened to this guy. It has to be, this, this stream runs so plainly through his books. So I get online, it took a minute. I mean, it's, it's public, his story. And the way he tells it, he grew up with his, his mother being religious, playing organ, I think, in Episcopalian church, and his father being more scientifically, mathematically oriented, and he, he related to the academics of his father and the spirituality of his mother. But when he got to around 13, he was having some conflict. According to his story, he went and asked the Episcopal priest, I, I'm, I'm having a problem. I see contradictions between what I'm learning in science and what I find in the Bible. And according to him, according to Dan Brown, the priest said to him, nice boys don't ask those questions. And he left the church and never looked back. We must have an environment where people can understand where we can say, yeah, those are deep questions, very important questions, difficult questions. Let's sort them out together. Let's think them through together. On the other hand, we must understand that our intellectual efforts won't save a fly, that it's only the power of God that can bring someone from death to life. Look, here, if, if your loved one has just passed away, Five minutes ago, died of a heart attack. Would you rather have the world's most brilliant, highly educated heart specialist or some simple believer from a tribe in Africa that's raised eight people from the dead that can't even read or write? Who would you rather have there at that moment? That's how it is in terms of the loss. The, the loss can only be saved by an encounter with God. You cannot reason someone from death to life. That reason may get them to the door to hear the gospel, but then they must encounter God. So Paul understood that up front and came into Corinth in, in the exact opposite way that you'd expect, recognizing that God's strength is made known through our weakness that his wisdom is made known through the foolishness of the cross. I mean, we're used to the message. But, but in the ancient world, the idea of this guy who dies a shameful criminal's death, being the savior of the world, it was a complete scandal. Obviously, the Jewish mind, you're expecting the Messiah is going to rule and reign. 
just for the Roman or Greek mind, the idea that this guy who dies the, the worst, most shameful, horrific death of the day, that this is the savior of the world, and, and you want some wise teaching? All right, Paul, we've heard a lot about you. What's your discourse going to be on today? A Christ crucified. Oh, we heard that yesterday. Yeah, I'm saying the same thing again. So look at what he writes here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He doesn't say not any of you, but not many. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Think of the disciples that Jesus taught and called to himself. Be the same descriptions here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, there's nothing less than things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's the source of your life in Messiah Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written in Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Samuel Chadwick, who was a teacher of Leonard Ravenhill generations ago, made the comment that the church always fails at the point of self-confidence. And this is something that's often hard for us to grasp. When you do ministry, it's very easy at a certain point to have a confidence in a method, or confidence in something that works. You can go to church growth seminars and, and, and church planning seminars, you know, this is how we do it, this is what works, this is the method that works, and then you put your trust in that method, and you may actually get numbers of people, but it doesn't mean the gospel's advancing. You may actually successfully build something that looks good, but it doesn't mean that disciples are being made. I've had the joy and honor of, of preaching in some of the best known churches, mega churches around the world and in America. And I've met fine people, praying people, serious about the word, serious about discipleship, serious about evangelism. So just because they're big and prosperous doesn't mean they're bad. On the other hand, it's a lot easier to put your trust in numbers and to put your trust in finances and to put your trust in buildings when you have them. Look, if, if you are about to go on the mission field, God's called you on the mission field, and you are independently wealthy with money that you inherited so that you automatically get a $15,000 check in your account every month, it takes a little less faith to embark on your missions journey. Oh, you still need faith for a lot of other things, but you're, you're, not, what, you're not asking how many cards came in with my name on it for the pledge. Is that $23 pledge a month, are you still gonna be able to renew that for the new year? No, because you have that stream. Now, that could be a blessing from God. That could be God's supply. That could be why he, he put you in that family with a, with a goal to, to blessing you in the future so you can be a blessing to others and don't have to think about money. It could well be, but you have a very different attitude than when you are about to, to go to the airport you know, with your whole family and you're believing God for money for gas to get to the airport, let alone where are the tickets coming from. God told you, you go and I'll meet you there. 
let alone like a John G. Lake story going to South Africa in the early 1900s with his wife and seven children completely by faith. In other words, they, were, they, they, they had enough money to basically get there and get on the boat and get off the boat. And God had someone waiting for them. You know, who are you? Who are you? Yeah, how many children say, okay, you're the ones, come on. Now, I don't think FI generally sends people out like that. <laughs> and there were many hardships they experienced, and there were deaths that they experienced. But the point of the matter is, it's very easy for us to put our trust in the flesh. It, here, I'll, I'll give you a political example, all right? Those who, who voted for Donald Trump for policies and, and things that he would enact, so there's the hope, okay, he's going to put certain Supreme Court justices in. Or there's the hope he's going to stand for this policy, or he's going to push back against this, or push back against that. Because there was someone in the White House and evangelicals, some of my friends had access to him, and I know we're preaching the gospel to him and calling on him to, to act in certain ways, and, and always in his ear about policy, and this is good, and hey, this is important for the poor, and hey, this is something to look at overseas, and you know, in his ear with wisdom and, and hoping that he'd listen. So he's out now, and Joe Biden is our president. By the way, here. Joe Biden is the president. Nothing is going to happen in a month, okay, or six months, just for the record. That's not controversial around here, is it? You haven't been guaranteeing some major event in a month. Okay, just because of the non-reaction. I was just, just wondering there for a second. Pastor Chris's latest prophecy update. No, no, it's not January 20th now. It's February. No, it's March. No, it's... It's February 20th, 2029. No, seriously, we're dealing with a real crisis of, of failed prophetic words, and now people know it's going to happen this way or that way. Or reminds me of the story of the church where, where I came to faith, where pastor told us there was a prophetic brother in the church once. Yeah, I heard this almost 50 years ago prophetic brother in the church, and had a word for a woman, sister, the Lord showed me you're going to be a missionary. You're going to China. The Lord sent you to China. And then later, you saw a brother had a word for that brother. Brother, the Lord showed me you're going to be a missionary. You're going to India. Well, he didn't know they were husband and wife. They just were two different parts of the building. He didn't know they were husband and wife. So after the service, they get in the car, and they are so excited and, and the wife says to the husband, honey, the man of God gave me a word. And the husband says, he gave me a word too. And by the way, you're looking at me really serious. If that was just an illustration, I wasn't saying you were going to India. Okay, just. <laughs> he was looking very seriously. Oh, that's confirmation, but okay. <laughs> so the wife says, yes, yes, this is the Lord said that, that we're going to be missionaries. We're going to China. And the husband said, no. No, no, the man of God said, we're going to India. So she said, no, 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 it was China. He said, no, it was India. So they said, well, we, we better go back in and get clarification. So they'll go in afterwards, and they find this brother. He's still there. And they said, brother, and the man says, you had a word over my wife. She's called to be a missionary. She's going to China. You had a word over me. I'm called to be a missionary. I'm going to India. And, and uh, 
uh, we'd like some clarification. And he says, oh, no, no, the Lord says you're going to Indochina. <laughs> I, I, for a couple of months now, have been writing and putting things out saying, please don't do that. If you prophesied Trump's re-election, or please, please don't do it. Please don't start messing with it and changing it. It means this and it means that. Because we're dealing day and night with the confused people and the people hurting and the people wondering if the rest of what they believe is real. And pastors writing saying, this is not fair. We have to pick up the pieces now. But let's just say that your mentality was, okay, we don't like a lot of the way Donald Trump operates. However, we are, we're glad for the pro-life policies and these policies internationally, these other things. We think these are good. And you know, okay, hey, he's in the White House advocating for certain things that are important to us, if you voted for him, right? Well, he's not there now. So suddenly, instead of looking to the White House, what do you, you have to pray. And in other words, you can't look to some, well, we can get to this, we can influence this person, because the ministers that'll be influencing Joe Biden will be liberal and with a very different perspective, and encouraging him that, you know, pro-abortion, that's the right stance, and pro-transgender activists, that's the right stance, and things like that. So we don't have that access to a person, to a man, and, and if you say, well, we have the majority. I mean, think of this, right? If you're a Democrat now, hey, we got the majority. Before that, Republican, we have the majority. And you kind of lean into that, some kind of strength. That doesn't necessarily advance the kingdom at all. Sometimes all that does is create greater resentment. Sometimes all that does is drive people away from Jesus because they just perceive us as heavy-handed and trying to push our agenda down their throats. We vote according to our conscience and conviction before God, and we understand that political things are very important, but ultimately, that's not going to advance the kingdom of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Or am I too unclear? It is very easy for us to put our trust in our strength, our wisdom, our ability, our political power, our numbers, our bank accounts, and in the process, we lose the simplicity of faith and the simplicity of the gospel. But here's the challenge. Often when God blesses us, we go from having nothing to having much. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if God so worked in America that there was a reformation of righteousness and political leaders across the board really caught hold of this and began to govern in ways beyond anything that we've seen and, 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 and there was a, a unified front of, of righteous principles that people were governing by, not imposing religion, but governing by righteous principles. It would be wonderful, but all too often when that happens in church history, when we go from the persecuted minority to the blessed majority, we get in the flesh. You know, it's just like you pray with desperation, some crisis in your own life. You pray like crazy. Oh, God, help. You don't help. It's over. And he helps, and then we forget about him and, and go on with our lives. It's just human nature. So that's the great challenge. Can God bless us with more? Can he bless us with finances, with numbers? Can he bless us with influence? Can he bless us with power without that becoming our identity? Can we always stay low on our knees, on our faces, trusting God and not putting our, our trust in our wisdom, but in his? Not in our power, but in his. Look at what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 2. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He could have, but he didn't. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, obviously, he's teaching. He's got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He spent other time with them teaching and things. But in terms of his gospel proclamation, it was as simple and basic as could be. And the thing that's always amazed me, when I'm in a meeting with someone that's really anointed to be an evangelist, number one, their messages are normally really, really simple. Those of us that were in the Brownsville Revival for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meetings, we couldn't wait to get there every night. We're always super blessed by Steve Hill's preaching every night. But every night was a variation of the same theme. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing how many different ways God gave him to get to the same theme. But every night was a variation of the same theme. You have sinned and deserve judgment from God. Jesus died for your sin. Repent, believe, and be saved came from a thousand different angles, but always the same basic message. And you preach that message and you think, in the natural, if you don't know anything, Al wasn't persuasive enough. Wasn't developed enough. Wasn't intellectual enough. The reasoning wasn't deep enough. Whatever. You get up and give your wonderful discourse, your philosophical arguments. Use all the high and lofty words and give the altar call. People don't even know what you're talking about. Somebody gets up. Like Steve preaches this ABC gospel. If you spent time with Reinhard Bonnke, he was deep and a thinker, but his message is ABC, simple gospel. And the people come running to the altar to get right with God because the power is in the proclamation of the cross. And, and that's where God's strength is displayed. And the key thing for us as believers is to have it built into us in the core of our being that when we're weak, then we're strong. That when we don't put our trust in the natural blessing or the natural increase or the natural stature in the sight of, of man, that when our trust is always in the simplicity of the gospel, when there's a constant recognition of our weakness in ourselves, then God can bless us with more and more. God can bless us with all kinds of things outwardly. When we find identity in our power and our prestige, we seek to be gospel influencers. Excuse me, cease to be gospel influencers. When to the contrary, we find our strength in the weakness of the cross, then God can give us all kinds of influence. And I was with you, look at this, in weakness, there's that weak word again. In weakness and in fear and much trembling. Remember, not long before Corinth, he's been whipped and beaten in Philippi. What's waiting for him in the next city? This is the mighty Paul. The, the mighty apostle Paul. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He's not lying here. He's, he's not exaggerating. I mean, picture Paul gets up to speak. We don't know exactly what he looked like. Some descriptions paint him a certain way, but I've never read a description. Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never read a description in the ancient world that Paul was some hulking, massive guy. 
And, you know, in 2 Corinthians 10, they say yeah, his bodily presence is, is weak. His letters, oh, strong letters. But it's just like a worthless little guy who doesn't even preach well. The Living Bible paraphrases in 2 Corinthians 10. You've never heard a worse preacher. That's what the critics say. This little guy gets up there <laughs> shaking. I and mean, that's the way he's described it. And next thing, a message comes and people are revolutionized and the sick are healed and the dead are raised and Jesus is glorified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Then once it rests in the power of God, rather than the wisdom of men, God can give you his wisdom. God can download all kinds of things into you. Once we don't put our trust in, in be it the White House, be it our bank account, be it our numbers, be it our education, once we don't put our trust in that and lean fully on him, then he can bless us with those other things. You know, along the way to, in my own life, getting a PhD, there was a time when, when I, knowledge was an idol to me. Academics was an idol. Not that I thought having a PhD was some big deal, but the whole how much you know and, and, and where you stand and your intellectual status and all of that, and it was an idol. I had to die to it completely, lay the whole thing down and say, I'll never finish it. And then God gave it back as a tool. Here, what happens to the children of Israel in Numbers, the 21st chapter? It's the account of the, the bronze snake. Children of Israel disobey. They're getting bitten by these venomous snakes. So God tells Moses, take a snake, put it on a pole, and when they look to it, they'll be healed. Quite an interesting thing. You, you take the, the very thing that's been striking and killing, and now put that on the pole, look to that, they'll be healed. And of course, John 3, Jesus points back to that as a prefiguring of the cross. Bronze snake. What happened to that bronze snake? Well, we don't read anything about it until 2 Kings 18. We're under King Hezekiah. He chops it up and destroys it. Why? Because the children of Israel had made an idol out of it. Called it Nehushtan, which is a bronze thing. Also play on the word for snake. The very thing that God had sent to deliver them became an idol. We do it all the time. We do it politically. We, we do it in other ways. God said something to help. And instead of our faith in God increasing, we look to the thing that was sent get our faith in the wrong place, and then the blessing ceases. So take a look now in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the end of the 11th chapter, Paul pressed because of circumstances and the fact that the Corinthians were super impressed by the super apostles, the ones who had it together, the ones who had some kind of strut Paul said they were servants of Satan, appearing to be servants of God. But they, they were the happening ones, the big shots, the powerful ones. And the Corinthians were being pulled away from the truth of the gospel and from Paul's teaching and following these so-called super apostles. So he says, okay, I, I, I'm crazy to do this. I'm out of my mind to do this, but I'm going to boast. These guys think they're so big, I'm going to boast. I've been beaten more than they've been beaten. I've been in prison more than they've been in prison. I've suffered this and this and this more than any of them. He said, if I'm going to boast, that's what I'm going to boast about. 
So look at what he says here. 2 Corinthians 11.30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's what he's going to boast about. There is that theme, weak, weakness. Three different Greek words, all from the same root in First and Second Corinthians, having to do with weak, weakness, being weak, over and over, a constant theme. Just you read through the book, you start to note it, underline it. It's not infirmity, as some older translations had it, but but weakness. Chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So now he's going to boast about being caught up to the third heaven, but won't, won't say it directly about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, may, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf, he's really speaking about himself the whole way through, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. He's not talking about going out and sinning. Yeah, my weaknesses with adultery, my weaknesses with alcohol, my weaknesses with drugs. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the things that show his weakness. Here, you're the great and mighty apostle Paul. You preach your message and finish the message. And the next thing, you're getting stoned and dragged out of the city. That is not good for the ego. (laughs) You know, David Wilkerson confessed one time while while preaching at Times Square Church that he was at some big conference and preached this powerful message and that everyone was going to be hanging out and fellowshipping, all these leaders and other people hanging out and fellowshipping. But he, the man of God, was just going to go back to his hotel room but he sent some of his people to walk around to find out what they were saying about the message. <laughs> the man of God would be back in his room, but he was like, what did that like? What did that Was it powerful? Was it anointed? <laughs> and you think of it, you just finished a great conference and great teaching and the whole, there's a certain energy in the room and everybody's excited and, and you, have to, you get whisked away and you're being put in jail and thrown in the back room somewhere and left to rot. Kills flesh and pride. So God had gifted Paul in so many ways that that to counterbalance it, he experienced extreme and unusual persecution. That's what I understand his thorn in the flesh to be. There's great debate about it. But this way he would not get caught up in himself. So look at this. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, too proud. By the way, Don't think that everything that happens in your life is a thorn sent by God to keep you humble because you're not Paul and I'm not Paul. (laughs) Just a little hint there in terms of applying the scripture. I remember in the church where I was saved, you know, initially young people and believing God for perfect health in every way and, you know, a couple of us had to get glasses, you know, was that a lack of faith to wear glasses and so on and I remember one of the young ladies saying, well, she thinks it's like a thorn in her, this is like her thorn. It's like, dear sister, you're not Paul. 
but this principle can apply. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So it was terrible. Whether it was the severe persecution he was experiencing or something else, it was terrible. But God said to him, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that wild? My power is made perfect in weakness. Again, to, to use simple illustration I've used many times, if, if I lift this thing here and, okay, I, I lifted this up, well, I'm a decent-sized guy and I work out and it's not heavy, that's no big deal. Dr. Brown is amazing! Here, watch, watch this. Watch this. Doctor, we've never seen anything like Dr. Brown. No, it's, it's no big deal. Anybody could do that. However, if a six-year-old kid weighing 38 pounds lifts the car off of you with one hand after it falls on you in the workshop and holds it up until the ambulance can pull you out, you say, my God, how did... You don't say, wow, kid, is your name Arnold Schwarzenegger? Are you called Sam? No, it's like, God, you're, God, you're amazing. You recognize it's God. There's, there's no mistaking it. Follow? That's why I say that it's the challenge politically, and, and, and this is not to talk about how to vote or, or what, but the challenge politically is you want to have people that represent what you believe is right and is best for all sectors of the society and will bring blessing to the nation and to the world. You want that, but then it's all too easy the moment you have it to say, look at us, we have it. And we put our trust totally there and, and, and leave off with the fundamental gospel things. You ask yourself, in the last six months in the church, has there been more focus on the Great Commission or the elections? Now look at what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Again, he's not talking about personal sin. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, which he's been boasting about in these previous verses, the persecution, the hardship, the suffering, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then am I content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So he's telling us what, what, what it is. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I like to be strong. I like to be healthy, confident, secure, money in the bank, big platform. I like that. I, I much prefer that to getting to India and going to the hotel only to find out that my credit card, ministry credit card is not working and my personal credit card is not working and I have to figure out how I'm paying for this $11 hotel room in India. I much prefer to know that we have money in the bank and that we're blessing our missionaries around the world. I much prefer that. I much prefer getting up to preach, feeling full of fire, full of faith, ready to go, than battling some attack while sitting there. You're going to faint while preaching. Across the board, 
I, I much prefer strength to weakness. I, I much prefer health to sickness, right? I mean, we all do. I, I would much rather have friendly people, people friendly to values that we believe are important in the government than people that want to kill us. But I fully understand, having been humbled enough over the years, I fully understand, sorry, Lord, I partially understand, <laughs> partially understand, and I'm continuing to grow. <clears throat> Let me see. I partially understand <laughs> that there's nothing good in me that there's nothing I can say that can help a fly, that any power or wisdom that I have is all by grace, that I'm 100% absolutely, completely dependent on him for any good or any ministry success, so that if, if he gives us all the other things, our trust is not in them, but in God. Are you hearing me? When I'm here with you at fire, what blesses me most is the quality of what's in your heart and your passion for God. Look, we've, we've been together in different ways since Pensacola. Some of the folks here for many years now, starting in late 96, early 97. So going on 25 years. And we've had times being in the midst of something numerically very strong. And then we had times of going from building to building when we get, you know, sharing a building and then a YMCA before God gave us this facility. And then we've been here where the building was completely packed. And in the natural, those things are nice to see because that's, that means people. That means we're reaching people. That means lives are being touched. You're not in it for numbers or finance, but it's nice to see people being touched. But as the years have gone on, the thing that I value and I believe God values is faithfulness, devotion to God and one to another, and a heart that's hungry for him. And I, I would a, a million to one rather be in an environment where people are hungry and going after God than when they're thriving and successful but shallow. And, and if Jesus was building something, think of it. If he was going to come into an area and launch his movement afresh. What would he be looking for? Would he be looking for the most successful? Would he be looking for the biggest and the best? Or would he be looking for those that are humble and, I don't mean failures and, and bound to lose, but people who are dependent, people who recognize their weakness, and then he can entrust them with things. In other words, you could be an incredibly successful CEO of a business with unbelievable knowledge as to how to build something from scratch, and Jesus might bypass you and take the janitor with a hungry heart, raise that person up. You say, that's unfair. No, if the CEO will humble himself in the same way that the janitor does and recognize that everything he needs comes from God and he doesn't have it in himself, then God could then use those gifts in a transforming way. When I brought in political things, I didn't mean to confuse but I meant to illustrate how easy it is for us to put our trust in a man or a party 
And then depending on which side of the thing you're on, you know, you're happy here or depressed there or excited there or mad there, whereas God's kingdom is going to advance just the same. I mean, think of this. We know the account in Joshua chapter 5. The children of Israel are now taking the promised land. God split the Jordan. They've passed through under Joshua. God says, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you, Joshua, right? What's the first mission? Take Jericho. So these are God's people with God's leader, Joshua, on God's mission, about to take Jericho. And Joshua's walking and sees a man standing with a sword drawn, angel of the Lord. He doesn't realize at that point, but here's this warrior. Are you for us or against us? Are you on our side or on Jericho's side? And what's the answer? No. <laughs> but as captain of the Lord's armies have come, now take your shoes off from your feet, the place you're standing is holy ground, and he falls down on his face and worships. What, what's the point? It's not a matter of, say, for our nation, is God with America? And in just the plain sense of the word, with all the sin and junk in our it's just abortion only. How is he going to be with us in that sense? The question that must be asked is, are we with God? That's the question in every case. We want God to back us and back our cause and make us bigger and better. God's saying, will you join mine? When we join his, leaving everything, we find everything. Take a look with me in Isaiah 57. Won't, I won't be much longer. Isaiah chapter 57. Just one verse. It's an amazing and beautiful verse. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That's, that's up there. That's pretty lofty. Who inhabits eternity. That's beyond our understanding whose name is holy, that's out of our reach, right? Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Someone told me that Heidi Baker once had a vision and Jesus said something to this effect, come up here with me where the poor are. In our mind, the poor are down here. They have nothing, they're struggling, hurting. We who have a lot, we're up here. God has it the opposite. You want to get, the important, you want to get with the important ones? The ones that really matter to me? Come up here where the poor are, where the hurting are, where the lowly are. The Beatitudes, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, turns everything upside down. Truly happy are the poor in spirit. No, 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 that's, that's weakness. When, when these days, when I quote the words of Jesus, when we call people to follow the teaching of Jesus, Paul, bless those who curse you, to pray for those who persecute you, to overcome evil with good, we're called compromisers. We're weak. No, we want to pick up our guns and go and storm the Capitol. In other words, unless you have this angry, militaristic, take over spirit, it's not the gospel. No, it's the exact opposite. 
we take over by serving. We live by dying. We gain in stature when the world despises us and we have the favor of God. And then from that vantage point, we can bless and help others. And then when he does give us authority, it's not to destroy, but it's to help and to bless. Okay, just for those that said, what about the American Revolution? This is not the American Revolution. Need to clarify that. I post the other day, in the midst of some of the constant controversy that I live in 24-7, I posted a verse from Galatians because I've been, I've been trying to help folks struggling and confused and for several months now I've been trying to put a net out, realizing they're going to fall, they're going to be disappointed, they're going to be confused just to be there and say, hey, we're not here to throw stones, we're not here to say we told you so, let's, let's move forward, let's, let's find out why you believe some wrong things, you got caught up in this, that, let's move forward. But a lot of people are not happy to hear that. So I posted a verse from Galatians, fourth chapter, just the verse, no commentary, just the verse on our S. Dr. Brown Facebook page. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Just that verse. So I don't normally read comments, and, and we get tens of thousands of comments, but I just decided to look at the responses, the hundreds and hundreds of responses. You know, many thanking me, you know, keep speaking the truth, keep... One of them was, you say, sound like a communist liberal. Okay, I, I, quote, I quote it, one passage of scripture. That's it. I quoted the other day, Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. I don't care if you have a different ideology than me and hate me, curse. I still want to sit down and try to build a relationship with you. Love my neighbors myself. Try to find a way to share the gospel. Try to find a way to influence you in righteousness. It's not compromise. We don't compromise our convictions. I, I just I said, I'm glad that Jesus said this because when I say it, I get accused of being wishy-washy and compromising. Blessed are the peacemakers. And many people were not happy with the words of Jesus. Is that strong enough? You be tough. Oh, and that's how we're going to win America, by putting our foot on somebody's neck? That, that's, that's how we're going to turn people to righteousness. That, that's how we're going to bring people into a pro-life mentality or embracing of God's standards of sexuality. Or, or embracing of his marriage for value, uh, his, his values for marriage, or whatever. We're going to do it by putting our foot on their neck and saying, "Our way or the highway." God's ways are very different, very, very different. And it's so easy for us as Americans, because compared to much of the rest of the world, we are prosperous. I know some really struggle, and we do have very poor people in America. I understand that. But compared to the rest of the world, this is the land of opportunity. People come here from around the world because this is the place of opportunity. And, and we're blessed, but we are blessed by that. And much of the good that's in our midst is because of the kindness and goodness of God and because of certain good Christian foundations in the midst of our country, which has always been mixed, we understand, the good with the bad. But it is so easy to put our trust in what we have, who we are, our power, our this, our that, that we lose sight of the gospel way, personally and corporately. 
So I want to encourage you in this. And I, I normally would not even bring in some of these other issues which can be so controversial and easily misunderstood, but this is where we are right now. This is the reality of where we are right now. To me, for those of us that voted Donald Trump or voted Republican and think, well, which way is the government going to go now? This is the great opportunity for the church to be the church. This is a great opportunity for us to realize, okay, transformation for America is going to come from the bottom up, not from the top down. And if enough hearts change, then voting patterns will change, and then other things can change, and then you can get holistic positive change. Whether it be in areas of justice here, or pro-life here, whatever, it'll come the right way. It's not either or, it's both and. When it starts with us, when we keep our focus where it should be on revival and on the Great Commission, so a holy church and a harvest of souls, when we do that and adequately make disciples, it'll, it'll flood over into every other area of life. It has to. When we really make disciples and live as disciples, it's going to impact the business world where we are. It's going to impact the media. It's going to impact politics. It's going to impact everything. We somehow think by having enough people that share some of our values or believe in our policies on top that we can enforce that on America. All that's going to do is create more and more hostility to what we believe. So I look at this as a great opportunity for the church. I, I look at this as an opportunity now, and I'm not saying that Donald Trump was a saint and Joe Biden is a devil. Obviously not. Every, every one of us is mixed, and outside of the gospel, we're all lost. Amen? The kingdom of God does not identify with either party. It's a matter of to what extent does a party identify with the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. Just like when you find yourself in a financial crisis or battling sickness or opposition to your ministry work, it forces you to your knees. And that's our place of strength. The place of weakness is the place of strength. And when, when, when you understand that, and obviously there's more for me to understand in terms of my own life, but, but God showed me my flesh enough times and, and there are enough things in my past over the years, I wish I didn't say that or do that or embarrassed here or that. And you get on your face, and you, okay, you realize, okay, in, my, in me and myself is no good thing. Every good thing is from him. And my entire dependence is on that. So if God wants me to speak to 10 million people a day, so be it. If he wants me to make three disciples here, so be it. Whatever pleases you, Lord. Because we're not measuring the way the world measures. If we can keep that attitude... Say, the, the, the hunger and the thirst for God and the passion for revival that remains as part of the DNA here. If you keep that same passion with 10,000 people and, and four campuses, then the blessing is strong. But I would rather have the hunger and thirst for the small number than great success and shallowness with a large number. The churches in the book of Revelation Jesus' commands without rebuke are the ones that seem weaker. And the ones that he rebukes the most strongly are the ones that seem to have it all outwardly. So let us find strength and weakness, not in our sin. It doesn't mean that we think sickness is a wonderful thing or poverty is a wonderful thing. We recognize these things in themselves are very negative and harmful. But in our weakness, in our inability, 
and our insufficiency, we now find this is where God manifests his strength. And you see, if he can trust that I glorify him and depend on him, then he can have me go up to a, a tractor trailer that's fallen on somebody with my finger lifted up with a smile and say, it's all about him because I understand it's not my strength. The more we get low, the more he can entrust you with. The more we understand it's about him, not us, the more he can raise you up to places of influence or use you in obscurity, and either way, he's glorified. I hope this makes some sense personally and corporately, and as we move forward politically, it's good for us to remember that God sits on the throne just the same with Republicans, Democrats, that the church continues to grow and thrive in some of the most difficult situations in the world. One of my friends was in touch with a believer in Iran, and this believer was alive during the days of the Shah when there was complete religious liberty for Christians. I mean, the Shah had a secret police and ruled with an iron hand, but Christians were free to be Christians. And my friend asked him, would you like to go back to the days of the Shah? And he said, are you kidding me? He said, the church is much healthier now under Islamic persecution. And he said, in fact, we want more persecution because it's making the church healthier. And more and more people are coming to Jesus and the church is growing in the midst of it. Let us learn to find strength and weakness, God's strength and our weakness, God's wisdom and our inability. Let us learn to see the power of God revealed in the simplicity of the cross. And when we do that, then God can entrust us with all kinds of things and work through us in the most extraordinary ways. And our only boast is in him. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray you take these words and bring application into each of our own lives personally and give us ears to hear, give us a heart to understand that we may live these things out and find your strength and our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.